0: The scripture this morning is from Second Peter 1 and 2 Timothy 3. Hear the word of the Lord. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were witnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And 2 Timothy, but as for you, continue on what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is God's word.
1: Thanks be to God. Know we say that a lot, thanks be to God, but you know, we've just sung word of God speak, and how beautiful that, that He has spoken. So say that with me one more time. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we commit to you this time asking that your word, even as we've just asked, would would find its mark. Lord, that will look different for each one of us. And that's the beauty of your spirit applying this word to 300 different situations, all in need of you, all needing your grace. And we pray, Lord, that you would accomplish your goodness and your pleasing and perfect will in us. Lord, um, for that to happen, this can't be my words, but your words. Not my thoughts, but your thoughts. If we pray it in Christ's name, amen. If uh, you were with us last weekend and you watched the Luther movie, you will remember this, this quote, probably, uh, I would say, the most famous quote from the Reformation. Luther's on trial at the Diet of Worms, and he's, uh, he's being condemned for, he's been convicted of heresy. And, and this is his, after a, a prayerful night of, of uh, getting his thoughts together, this is his response. And because Joseph Fiennes can say it much better than I can, let's watch it from the, uh, um, from the movie itself. I am
0: convinced by scripture and reason, and all that pubs and councils who so have to do it to themselves. My conscience
1: is captive to the word of God, to find conscience is not a nor Sorry, guys we're just going to go to this okay so there it is that's what they were try- that's what uh, that's what he was trying to say right there so <laughs> i think luther probably was a bit more clearly heard back then um less i'm convinced by scripture and by plain reason and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves my conscience is captive to the word of god to go against conscience is neither right nor safe i cannot and i will not recant here i stand i can do no other God help me. Amen. This morning, we want to ask ourselves what that would look like for us today, to say, my conscience is held captive to the Word of God. That conviction was a founding principle of the Reformation. The Reformation does not move forward without that, and it's, it's what we call the doctrine of sola scriptura. So this morning, we're going to try and, and answer three questions about it. Um, simply this, what is Sola scriptura. Why was it important 500 years ago, and why is it still relevant today? That's, that's where we're going with it today, okay? Uh, simply first, what is sola scriptura? And I think this is uh, as simple as the definition gets right here. It's the affirmation that the Bible is our ultimate authority for our life and our doctrine. It's saying um, that this is God's word, and it's saying that this word stands above all other authorities in our life, and it's our blueprint for understanding who God is and what God's will is and what his plan and promises are, right? And it acknowledges that there are, of course, other authorities in our life as well, but it puts this over everything else as our ultimate authority. What makes it hold sway over all other authority is that we're convinced that this is God's word. We believe this to be God's inspired word. And if so, then that means it reflects what he wants us to understand of his character and of his will for our lives. The Bible is a record of God's communication to man. And you saw that in the passages that, uh, that were, were just read. Uh, in First Peter 1, you see it says, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. We were eyewitnesses. It says later there towards the bottom, it says, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. When we were with him on the sacred mountain. See, when we read the New Testament, what we have is... is eyewitness account, the people who actually saw Jesus and talked with them and had lunch with him and followed him around and called themselves his his uh, disciples. All the things that we've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark about over the past months, these guys were witness to. And what's funny is plenty of good people since then, in the last 2,000 years, have put out their own interesting ideas as to who they think Jesus is or what they think Jesus said and And it's helpful for us to remember that we have eyewitness accounts to go back to, to go back to the source, right? You would do that if you were writing a book report on Abraham Lincoln and somebody um, said, oh, wow, yeah, uh, have you seen this book? And they give you Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. You would go back to, you'd say, okay, that's interesting, but let me go back to the sources and see if I can determine for myself from eyewitness accounts, people who are closer to it than this guy, uh, what really happened? You would, should do the same thing. We have the scriptures to do that. And so when a book comes along that says, ah, oh, you know, I heard that Jesus got married and he had a family or whatever, right? You can say, well, what should I believe about that? I go back to the word and I say, what, is, what, what does the scripture say about the nature of who Jesus is? It's from the people who knew him best, right? They were there. That makes this a reliable account. But he goes further, Peter does. He says, this is, it's not just that we're eyewitnesses and that makes us reliable, because we saw some, we saw God do some inspiring things. It's that their very writing is inspired. It's the inspired word of God. Look at this; it says, um, "We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. You do well to pay attention to it. A light shining in a dark place." It says there, um, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what it says is that the Bible is God's revealed, it's his inspired word for us. He used people to write it, yeah, but the whole process was carried on by the Holy Spirit because the Bible isn't just a bunch of authors who collectively decided to write some interesting things about God. The Bible is God writing about himself. It's God moving through prophets, disciples, different authors, so that what comes together from the whole thing is God's communication of himself to us. We also heard that in in 2 Timothy 3, where it says, among other things, that all Scripture is God-breathed, and the Greek word there means exactly what you would think it would mean. It means God-breathed, that every word of Scripture is an act of God, right? It's his word reflecting his character and his will into our lives. So, Sola Scriptura says that that God's word is our ultimate authority because God is our ultimate authority, and we believe that this is the way that he communicates that to us. And I know that I could say plenty more about that. Uh, It's not my purpose to, uh, we had a focus class not long ago where we talked about inerrancy and things like that. I encourage you to go back and listen to that again. But let me move to the second question, which is, why is this so important? Why was it so important 500 years ago? Because everything I just said about Second Peter and 2nd Timothy, that's stuff that the Roman Catholic Church in Luther's day would have, would have uh, not had any issue with anything that I just said. They would say, yes, the Bible is God's word. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It holds authority over our lives. The difference is they had another stream of authority as well. And that's where things got sideways in the church. The early church, for the, for the first 300 years or so, it would have been a sola scriptura kind of church. But then these other ideas started coming in, this other idea um, that, uh, that God's infallible word needs an infallible interpretation. And that became popes and councils and things that we would just call church tradition. And what's interesting is they would say that that is equally infallible. So they would say that divine revelation has not one but two sources, scripture and church tradition that includes the pope and the councils and and all the rest. That's all together God's word, and that's equally infallible. And so they would say that God's word is really made up of the written scriptures and the unwritten traditions that, of course, interestingly, very conveniently, the, the pope had the right to say what those were, right? And the pope, says the pope, was never wrong. Here's some popes that developed this idea further and further. It said Gregory VII said the Roman church has never erred nor ever sh- by the witness of scripture shall err to all eternity. They were also very humble. Um, pope Innocent Third: the pope is the mediator between God and man. Do you see, where do you, how do you argue with this, right? If you say you're always right, then the statement that you're always right is, you, you know, you believe that that's always right too, so... Anyway, we declare, state, define, and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff, the Pope. That's what Boniface VIII said in in 1302. And so you see where this is going, right? Historically, though, this gets very embarrassing because by, if you guys have been following Rick's focus class, you know that in the 1300s, there was a great schism where there were three people claiming to be the Pope and they, each of them, no kidding, each of them excommunicated the other two, right? So... Which one's inerrant? <laughs> which one's the infallible word of God, right? It depends on which one you ask. And you couldn't fact check the Pope against the scriptures, folks, because you didn't have the scriptures. Right? You didn't have access to them. Luther never even saw a Bible until he was twenty in a library. His mentor, Karlstadt, was the chancellor and the chair of the Bible department, and he never owned a Bible until well after he'd earned his doctorate in Bible. So how do you know if a tradition is in keeping with the Bible? You just have to take the Pope's word for it. The Pope is never wrong. And so you've got all of these uncontested ideas, indulgences, uh, purgatory, Sacred relics, sacred pilgrimages, sacred shrines, a pantheon of saints and saints' days and um, penance and last rites and all of these things. One example, I know Doug talked a couple of weeks ago about the idea of indulgences. Go back and you can listen to that. But another way that you could, quote, work your time off, work some time off of purgatory, either for yourself or for a loved one, was by viewing sacred relics. Um, and if you watched the Luther movie uh, last week with us, you know that um, Luther's benefactor, Frederick the Wise of Saxony, actually had a phenomenal collection of sacred relics—bones supposedly from the cross. Or sorry, bones from the from the, the wood and, and, and bones of the. Sorry, wood from the cross and bones from the saints, and you get it. You know what I'm trying to say. So, and when that went on display to the public, bad news: steep admission price, right? Good news, Vatican said, this is how much uh, time you can work off. Just by viewing them, the act of viewing them, you can work off this much time in purgatory. 1,902,202 years and 270 days. I have no idea how you come to a number like that, but that is a scary number because if that's the amount of time you worked off your purgatory sentence, it just, that's mind-blowing, wow. Um, <laughs> what happened to today, you will be with me in paradise, right? Um, so none of that stuff was in the Bible, Certainly not that math. But who knew that? The church said it was true. So you did it. It's tradition. Why do we do it? I don't know. It's tradition. And worse than that, in the midst of all of that, central truths like salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, central truths like the gospel, just got buried underneath layers and layers of tradition and superstition and false doctrine. So Luther's audacity wasn't in saying that the Bible was inerrant authority. It was in him saying that the Bible was the only inerrant authority. You remember the quote. He says, whoops, eh, it should be right here. The quote says, Unless I am convinced by Scripture and by plain reason and not by popes and councils, who have so often contradicted themselves. Guys, I know that looks like a parenthetical statement. There is nothing parenthetical about that statement. He came to say that in debates more fully, and and, uh, he fleshed that out more. But right here, he is saying, popes and councils, they err. They make mistakes. They contradict themselves. And instead, he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. The other conviction, by the way, that was, that was popular in the church at that time, that was kind of standard practice, it was this conviction that the scriptures are not sufficiently understandable for the common man, that they cannot be interpreted rightly except by those who have been authorized to do so. So folks, even if you lived 500 years ago and you could get your hands on a Bible and you read Latin, tough, you probably still won't understand it. Why? Because you can read a verse, and you might think that you know what it means, but you don't really know what it means. You don't know the hidden meaning, the allegorical meaning. These guys loved allegory, and they would just layer allegory after allegory about beyond the surface reading, what do these things really represent. One of my favorite examples of this is Bernard of Clairvaux, 12th century. Good guy, did some good things for the church. This is how they wrote back then, though. He's talking about Song of Songs, verse 10, chapter 1, which says, um the 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 lover is saying to the beloved your cheeks are lovely between earrings your neck with a necklace and i know you know you think you know what that means but you don't know what that means this is what it means It means, the heavenly goldsmiths to whom the task is committed promise that they will fashion resplendent tokens of truth and insert them into the soul's inward ears. I cannot see what this may mean if not the construction of certain spiritual images in order to bring the truest intuitions of divine wisdom before the eyes of the soul that contemplates to enable it to perceive as though in a puzzling mirror what it cannot yet gaze on face to face. it keeps going like this, guys, for several pages about this verse, which probably just means you have a nice face, I like your earrings, that's a cool necklace. (laughs) Right, <laughs> And so the Bible, you can imagine with all of this mess, the Bible was seen as, as incomprehensible and inaccessible, which is great if you're the one in power because everyone's going to come to you and say, tell me what it means, and whatever you say it means, that's what it means. Luther had a very different conviction. He believed that Scripture is clear on its central teachings, and that it can be understood by those who read it. Imagine that. It's not some dark, mysterious, obscure book that belongs in some ivory tower where only those qualified come up there and get their visions from on high and bring them down from the mountain. It's good news for everyone. And if it is understandable by everyone and good news for everyone, then it should be in the hands of everyone. That was Luther's conviction. And so it's time to translate the thing into German. And when he said that idea to Staupitz, his mentor Staupitz said, Martin, can you imagine? He was against it. He said, can you imagine what would happen if we gave the Holy Bible to every common man? What would happen? And Luther said, well, Father, I think that we'd have more Christians. He also said this, a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. That was a popular sentence with the Vatican, as you can imagine. He wanted to arm the layman with God's truth. By the time Luther died in 1546, it is estimated that a half a million Germans owned a Bible. Isn't that awesome? I mean, yay Gutenberg, yay Luther for that. A half a million Germans. Sola Scriptura was a crucial rediscovery. What I'm trying to say in summary is this. It it meant that the Bible is our ultimate authority. It meant that the Bible is understandable. And those were profound ideas 500 years ago that instead we're working uh, so many ideas working against it to bury the bible underneath a pile of all kinds of other traditions and mess it is if it is god's word to us and if it is understandable to us then the most obvious thing in the world is that it should be accessible to us that it should be translated into the common language and that we should all be able to read it and understand it and submit to it that's the idea So why is that relevant today? And I know we could create dozens of reasons. I'm only going to focus on three because I'm Presbyterian and you're only supposed to do three. So that's how it works. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Amen. Preach it. So why is it still relevant today? Let me start with the obvious one, I think. Um, Sola Scripture reminds us that we're a people under authority. I hope it reminds you of that as I describe this. You are not your own authority. Sorry. Google, you are your own guru, and see what you find. It's pretty hilarious. Google, you are your own highest authority, and you will find some great, weird quotes out there. It is conventional wisdom today that maybe we wouldn't say it as strongly as this, but it's assumed that each of us is autonomous and free to do what we want to do according to the code that we think is best for our own lives, that we construct ourselves ourselves And maybe we wouldn't say that we do that, but if we're honest, we do that in all kinds of ways. It is so much more likely for us to come and put ourselves over the Bible than to put the Bible over us. And we'd like to say that we're, in theory, this is where we are, but in practice, sorry, that this is where we are, (laughs) but in practice, it looks like this. It says, well, yeah, I believe in the Bible, but I don't believe the hell stuff in there. Or... I'm a fan of the Ten Commandments, except the fourth one, half the fifth one. Other than that, I'm okay with it. Or, um, I know that the tithe seems to be important somehow, but I doubt that it applies to my situation today, right? We put ourselves over the Bible. It's cafeteria style. I like this one, like this one, like the love and grace. Don't, don't much care for this one. Going to leave that out. Selective submission is just another word for insubordination. We're called to submit to the whole counsel of God because it's his word. We also fail to live under authority not just by our attitude towards the scripture but also by just ignoring it altogether which I'm sure that all of us at various times in our lives and maybe even this morning would say that we're in a period of. We want to hear from God. We say we want to hear from God. I wish that he would speak, word of God speak. But when it comes time to seek his will we will not go to this. We'll go to dreams and visions and hunches and impressions and guesses and fleeces and liver shivers and casting lots and games that we play to try and, quote, hear from God, sound spiritual about it, maybe in the process, instead of going to the very words that he gave us. Guys, do you want to know what God's will is for your life? I know I said this not too long ago. Um, This is his will for your life. I know it doesn't get into all the what's and where's, but it does plenty on the why's and how's. And if you want to know what God's will is for your life, then you follow this the way that he's revealed how he wants all of his children to, to live and what he wants them to believe and understand and how he wants them to trust in his promises. And as you do that in his, in his general will, he will lead you into his specific will. That's how he does it. He doesn't crop dust it in the sky for you, neon signs. That's not how he works. Follow this and he, you will follow him into what that unique thing is that he's calling you into. If our conscience is captive to the word of God, then, then we're saying, you know, God, tell me what to do, and with your help and by your grace, I will commit to do it. That's what it means to put the Bible over us instead of us over the Bible. So that's, that's the first one. The second one is, sola scriptura. I think, provides a fixed point for us. Because our culture has all kinds of ideas about what we should believe and what our ethics should be and what we should do. But our culture is always shifting. It's a moving target, right? What's acceptable now might be deplorable in 20 years. What's, what was deplorable 20 years ago might be acceptable now. It's, a, it's, a, it's shifting. It's morphing all the time, right? And even in religious circles, you know, Christians are not immune to this. Even in, within our own circles, we, there's always some new thing beyond God's word. That is just begging to get to become the, ne- the next thing, the next fad. And so we find ourselves walking into Christian bookstores and seeing that the bestsellers are you know, kids with heavenly visions or novels about shacks or codes about da Vinci or whatever. And what are we supposed to believe about these things? That we have to go back to the scriptures and we say, this is my anchor, this is my foundation. I'm going back to that. I'm going to compare, I'm going to test everything against that. So it gives us a fixed point. you guys remember um, a few months ago we baptized Leo Han? Uh, He's a visiting professor from Beijing. He was here for about 15 months. And in those short 15 months, he heard about Christ for the first time. He put his trust in, in Jesus. He, he committed his way to him. He led his eight-year-old daughter to the Lord. And, and now, back in July, he went back to Beijing as a, as a new creation. And so much of that story will stick with me. I'm so grateful that we got to be a part of that. But what's so one of the things that I most remember him saying is he said, I have... Prior to this, prior to Jesus, I have always asked myself, what is the righteous act? He was a very moral person. He wanted to always know, what is the right thing to do? And he said, and I never knew. I always had to guess. I don't know what the righteous act is. I had no faith, and so I didn't know, um, I didn't know so I just had to guess. And he said, but now I have the Holy Spirit, and I have God's word, and now I know where to go to find out what the righteous act is. I just I love that what he's saying there is this this changes the way that I orient my life and how I make my decisions. It changes when God orients us around his word, it changes everything. It changed Leo, it changes us. There's plenty more I can say, but here's one more, and I think this is a, a big one and, and very central to what happened in the Reformation. It Sola Scriptura puts the gospel center stage again where it belongs. The reformers reclaimed the authority of the Bible. Um, when they did that, it allowed them 500 years ago, and it allows us today to clear away all the cobwebs, all the mess, and to be able to see clearly what God's promises are and what the gospel really is. Not just what some people through the years have decided to make it into, but what, what Jesus really said it was. To see what Jesus has done for us. To see a complete story here, cover to cover, of God's pursuit of his people. This is, this is not a list of rules. This is not a hall of heroes. This is a love story. This is God pursuing his people and drawing them into a place where by faith they could find that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We get to see for ourselves how we're declared right with God. I don't have to guess anymore about praying to saints and relics and wondering if I bought enough indulgences to make God happy. And when we hear something that doesn't sound like the gospel... We know when some church leader starts saying crazy stuff, we can go back and say, no, that's wrong. Here's the gospel. You can do that. When you're rejoicing in, praise Jesus, I uh, praise God I'm a Christian and my, my burden has been lifted, and somebody else comes along, with a tr- just backs up a truckload of legalism and dumps it on you, you can say, that's not how the gospel works. That's not how my Savior works. I want to end with this um, a few years ago here in Charlotte, there was an exhibit that came through i don 't know how many of you guys saw it it's called the passages exhibit um, it is a uh, a ton of it 's a chronology of the transmission of the bible through through the years and it's something like I think twenty thousand different bible artifacts, something like that and it 's eventually going to become i think next year the the museum of the Bible that they 're building in d c that 's where this whole exhibit is going it 's like eight floors of exhibits so um, you could spend hours in the place and not see everything and so i went multiple times i got the season pass there was a two-for-one on indulgences for it so i thought that was <laughs> worth it so it's good um the last time i was there was a slow day and uh i think it was just the docents and i and so i went up to one of them that i I'd, I'd talked with before and i said hey you're in here every day so like what's your favorite thing in this exhibit and um so he walks me over to this this thing that i I'd, I'd, I'd seen it but i hadn't seen it you know when you just you you You'd read it, you looked at it, but you just didn't realize the significance of it and here, until you hear the whole story. Um, it was a 1535 edition of William Tyndale's New Testament. Now, for those of you who don't know, William Tyndale was doing in England what Luther is doing in Germany. He was translating the Bible into English, and he was being persecuted, run out. in fact, he was run out of the country for it. Um, Sir Thomas More didn't like the guy very much. And um, he said, he called him a hellhound in the kennel of the devil. And he said that by translating the New Testament into English, that Tyndale was, quote, discharging a filthy foam of blasphemies out of his brutish, beastly mouth. So I'm standing over this 1535 edition of Tyndale's New Testament, and the docent says, um, this is the edition that he was working on uh, when he was in prison right before his execution. Um, There are only four copies left in existence, and this is what he died for. Sobering, right? Tyndale was run out of England for his translation work. He actually went to Worms for a bit in Germany, and he eventually ended up in Antwerp. The Bishop of London pursued him, the Bishop Tunstall. He realized that um, what what Tyndale was doing was... uh, Uh, He was uh, translating the Bible into English. He had a printing press going, and then he was shipping them back into England through the cloth merchants. Cloth was the family business for the Tyndales. And so they were rolling it up in the rolls of cloth and shipping it back. And when when Tunstall found that out, he was furious and started buying up all of the cloth before it was, before the, before, actually on the continent before it was imported so that he could catch the Bibles. But of course, buying all the cloth just helped continue to fund Tyndale's work, and he just kept making more of them. Um, There was, on the plaque, as it was describing this, it did say, just as an interesting aside, which I've tried to Google and fact-check, but it said it on the plaque. It said that this is where the term men of the cloth came from uh, for pastors, is that smuggling the the, the Bibles in through the cloth, right? Um, So Tunstall would confiscate these Bibles, and and he would burn them. Eventually, Tyndale was betrayed, somebody worked himself into the ranks and betrayed him. He was imprisoned in a castle near Brussels on October 6th, 1536. Happy 481st anniversary of that one. He was strangled, burned at the stake. His ashes were thrown in a river. His last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And presumably that happened because it's beautiful that although this happened in 1536, that several years later um, the king commissioned uh, an English translation of the Bible, and eventually a king named James, perhaps you've heard of him, in 1611 uh, commissioned the King James Bible. Um, It's believed that about 75% of it is a direct plagiarism of William Tyndale, which I'm sure he would have no issues with. Folks, um, someone died to hand this to you. Multiple someones died so that you could have this You wouldn't have to trust what your pontiff or your pastors say this means. You can read it for yourself. In fact, you're encouraged to. It's your life. It's your breath. Not to be overly dramatic, but I picture if some messenger came in here with arrows in his back and handed us a letter and said, message for you, sir, and as his last breath hands us this note, I just picture that I would treat that with some gravitas as I realized that he gave his life for that. I would treat that message with heavy sobriety. If we did that with our Bibles, there would be no lost and found. <laughs> no offense to any of you who have ever lost a Bible in lost and found. In fact, this one I think had a tour of duty in the lost and found at one point. Um, but we would be clutching these things so close to our chests You know how you just intuitively know if your wallet's missing, men, or if your purse is missing, ladies? I think that would be our instinct on the Bible if we truly understood what this is. And we would cherish it, and we would read it, and we wouldn't just Google it when we need a verse. We wouldn't just depend passively on whatever uh, the, the pastors decide to put up on the screen, but we would grab the Bible. We'd be walking in here, hugging our Bibles, recognizing that we're ready to... Wrestle with God's word because this is life to us. I don't mean to meddle too much, but I'm curious if you even are using your Bible as opposed to just, you know, a web search. Um, how dusty is it? How, how regular a part of your week is it? a regular part of your day? We need this, guys. This is how, you want, it, you want to hear from the Lord? This is how you hear from the Lord. We see in history a host of people who gave their lives to say, Message for you, sir. (laughs) They gave their lives to hand that off to us. The reason that it's worthy of our attention, though, isn't because of that. It's not because some people died to give it to you. It's because their conviction over why they did that should be our conviction as well. I shouldn't love this because 500 years ago some English guy died for it or some German guy went to prison for it. That definitely gives it some gravitas, but the real reason that I grab a hold of this, right, is the same reason that it was worthy of their attention because they believe it to be God's word. It attests itself to be God's word, God-breathed. God's breath in our lungs. What a cool thing to ask God tomorrow to say, Lord, I'm gonna pick up your word and I recognize that sometimes it's awesome and sometimes it's dry. This morning, Lord, just make it awesome for me. I'm, just, I'm trusting you to come alive on the pages of scripture and I'm gonna commit to make that time for you and I'm gonna wait for you to speak to me. This is God's word. Thanks be to God, right? Luther said this. He said, we should preach the word, but the results must be left solely to God's good pleasure. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorff, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. I did nothing. The word of God did everything, right? Verbum domini manet and eternum. The word of the Lord endures, the, the, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. If we want to invest in eternal things, we should start right there. God intends for his word to do His work, not just in some church events 500 years ago, but to do his work in you today, tomorrow, this week. And his word endures forever. So let's pray and ask him to bear that into us. Let's pray. Father, I I know I speak for many um, in confessing to you how uh, lackluster I can come to your word. Um, How uh, for all the periods of uh, of joy and digging in and getting so much, there are also periods where... um, I am uh, apathetic uh, towards your revelation to me. I'm confident, Lord, that uh, I don't speak for just myself here. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bear that um, love for your word and uh, a passion for your word into us. Because, Lord, if you were to do that, if we were to only ask you to do one thing and that were, that was it, it would change everything, Lord. It would change uh, our humility. It would change who's our authority. It would change better than anything Lord um, it would change how we understand what you think of us in Christ that your promises are are beautiful and that you you've declared that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Lord um, so many people's opinions matter to us that shouldn't The only one that ultimately does is you and you tell us what you think of us as we read your word and so Lord we we uh, we lay our hearts at your feet and ask that you would tune our hearts more and more to be captive to your word. Uh, even as we uh, take up this offering now, and as we walk out of here, that our hands and our feet and our resources and all of that would be an overflow of how grateful we are that you've spoken to us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.